You know, I think this exhibition could be or has the potential to be so sad. I mean, that there's just such a small number of works that can be found out of this once sort of large, great collection. But instead, there's it's full of celebration of the objects that have been recovered, that Richard Neumann was not someone who seemed to hold much of a grudge, even though he had every right to. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Claire Whitner, Director of Cultural Affairs with the Worcester Museum. In the following conversation, Miss Whitner discusses the exhibition entitled What the Nazis Stole from Richard Neumann and the Search to Get It Back. As you will hear, the Neumann story is another example of Nazi looting followed by post-war red tape that foiled most families' efforts at restitution. Claire Whitner, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Would you describe how the exhibition about Richard Neumann and his looted art collection came about? Uh, Certainly. Uh, We were approached by Richard Neumann's um, descendants, his grandson, uh, who had been successful in the past decade or a little over a decade in recovering 16 works of art from his grandfather's collection. And they were looking for a museum sort of local to where they were living that would take on these works of art as long-term loans. They could be on view to the public, which they really felt was part of Richard Neumann's understanding of the role of art in society, that even though this was a private collection, he was really committed to art being for everyone. And, uh, you know, just reviewing the collection, it was very complimentary to our own, you know, that we had work from that time period, but not quite exactly what they had. So we saw that there were synergies between our collections. But in learning the story of Richard Neumann and sort of all of the efforts that his descendants made to to return these works to the family, we felt it made a very compelling story. And that before we started to integrate these works into our permanent collections galleries, it was important to tell you know, both the story of Richard Neumann and his family in Vienna uh, at the time of World War II, and then the story of the past, you know, 70 years in the attempt to uh, reconstitute the collection. You have described uh, Mr. Neumann as a collector's collector. I was curious if there were certain pieces that stood out to you that are in the exhibition that kind of uh, exemplify that. Well, I think when I say collector's collector, it's clear that uh, Richard Neumann was trying to concentrate in a particular area. And it was also likely through the guidance of the experts, uh, dealers and curators that surrounded him, that he was really focusing on late Baroque, early Rococo painting. And that's where so it's certainly the largest concentration of works in the collection that have been recovered exists. Uh, and, you know, what I mean by sort of his his really good eye for knowing what to buy from that time period, he has two Magnascos in his collection. And Magnasco was a very prolific painter. Um, and there's a, I think I would say, a you know, a broad 
range of quality in Magnasco. Uh, and but the two that were in Richard Neumann's collection, the two that we've been able to show in the museum are exceptionally beautiful. So you can tell that he looked at a lot of this work, he thought sort of a lot about these artists and the you know the kind of work that they were producing. And when he purchased works for his own collection, he was very particular in what he selected. And he has uh, a predominant amount of Christian religious work, and several of them are Madonna and Childs. And I had read that one of your favorites was, I believe, uh, the Debici Madonna and Child. Would you describe that piece? And what I had mm-hmm. read is um, that it was an example of a transition from medieval symbolism to Renaissance naturalism. And I was wondering if you could kind of describe why that is. Oh, certainly. I think when um, anyone who looks at the painting can see that it's not an entirely naturalistic rendering of a Madonna and child, there's something kind of wooden about it. And yet uh, you see that there's this real attempt to give, um, you know, the infant Jesus these childlike qualities that this isn't sort of a a miniature man that you kind of see more in in earlier medieval painting, that uh, there's a real attempt on the artist's part to create something that looks like a mother and a baby. And yes, they're meant to be sort of religious holy figures, so... Um, not any old mother and baby, but, you know, a real connection to this humanistic connection that emerges in the Renaissance to say that, you know, there are these, um, these figures that are part of a much larger kind of religious framework. And yet uh, we can relate to them in some way and their relationship to one another on a uh, human level. And I think that's what's appealing is watching the artist try to negotiate that relationship to kind of stay within this traditional iconography and yet start to insert more naturalism, more humanism. The other two paintings that stood out to me from the 14 that are in this exhibition are the donor panels that were the altar wings. And I Mm -hmm. was... Then later reading that those were understood to be uh, Mr. Neumann's prized pieces from his collection. Could you describe some qualities of those paintings? And one of the qualities I'd read about was that it had uh, a texture to it. Well, they certainly, the Martin van Heemskerk donor panels really demonstrate uh, what was prized at that moment in Netherlandish paintings, 16th century painting. And, um, you know, it is that naturalism that I was talking about sort of earlier with the Neri Bici uh, panel and trying to kind of recreate very mimetic surfaces um, and to create realistic sort of verisimilitude in these different kinds of textures. So that fur looks like fur and you can tell that is different from silk. And especially when you're thinking about donor panels, that these are wealthy citizens that are spending money on these commissioned altarpieces that will go in sort of the local cathedral, um, that these, you know, their clothing speaks to their wealth. And for an artist to be able to distinguish between all of the different sort of sumptuary fabrics <laughs> that are happening in their clothing, uh, you know, was certainly valuable. Uh, and it, you know, it speaks to a certain virtuosity of the artist as well, um, that that is a, a technical skill. Those two were 
the subject of Jernoyman's restitution action against Austria back in the 50s. Is that right? Yes. So, you know, as I said, they were his prized possession. Um, You know, they uh, were, you know, they were estimated to be very valuable sort of when uh, in 1938, there was the assessment of his assets and under the anti-Jewish laws. And uh, it was clear that as soon as it became possible to start trying to reclaim some of these things, that was Richard Neumann's first order of business was to try to get back the Martin van Hames donor panels because he knew exactly where they were. Uh, you know, I think in terms of the works that had gone missing in France, they were sold to dealers or they were left in, and they were scattered. But he knew that uh, when the works were seized in 1938, that they had just gone straight to the Kunsthistorisches Museum. And there had been some negotiations, uh, his daughter sort of acting as his representative. And uh, she um, received some compensation. Uh, he was given some works actually from another Jewish collector's collection uh, in exchange. And But he knew that they were physically in the building and he was able to start, um, you know, some proceedings against Austria and very, very early on. He was still in Cuba at the time, but he was working to kind of bring these works to New York, which is where his daughters were living. And were those some of the ones that were restituted then and then others were denied an export license? I wasn't sure how many were able to be returned to him at that point. So nothing from the Kunsthistorisches Museum came back to him. Um, It all was returned much later to uh, his grandson and his grandson's family um, in the 2000s. Actually, I think it was in 2008, but I'll have to double check that. Um, and that might, actually, I think it's 2011. Uh, I'm, st- I'm trying to pull up my notes from all of this um, and my computer's acting a little a little randomly. Um, no, it took a very long time to get those works back. Uh, the only things that he was able to get back were things that he had left with personal contacts and possibly some galleries. There were, you know, a few paintings um, and those were returned to New York. They went to his daughters. His collection is believed to be, was it around 200 works, give or take? Yeah, if not more, you know, it's a little hard to wrap your head around how large of a collection it was because that initial number is from the inventory of his collection uh, that was conducted when he applied for uh, landmark status in Vienna, uh, which was an arrangement that allowed um, owners of art to receive a tax benefit, um, but they were also making their collection publicly accessible. And uh, for Richard Neumann, that was important. It was, you know, tax benefits are always nice, but I think he always really just felt that he needed to share his collection. And even after he was living in exile and his collection had been entirely taken away from him, he started lecturing in Cuba first to the, uh, you know, the population of refugees there, but then also just to Cubans as well. So he felt a real mission, I think, in sort of sharing his love of art with everyone. The majority of the collection that we are aware of, was that from the Habsburg dynasty's holdings that he bought from? And I believe it was 
Otto Banesh was the curator at the Albertina who had advised him about that. Maybe give an overview of his pre-war Viennese collection and whether or not he fit in with, uh, was he typical of other collectors at that time or um, are there examples of how he stood out and, and did his own, uh, pursued his own taste with his collection, notwithstanding his peers? Yeah, his primary advisors were Otto Benisch at the Albertina and then also um, Lily, oh, now I'm blanking, Fröhlich Buma, who was also at the Albertina. She was sort of there in a voluntary capacity. Uh, she and her husband uh, were running a um, a gallery and she specifically focused in Italian drawings. So I think that concentration of, um, you know, Italian oil sketches for ceiling paintings of late uh, 17th, early 18th century. A lot of that comes out of his relationship with Lily Froelich Buma. He clearly was a, um, a deep lover of old masters. You know, we think about what's happening in Vienna at the time that he's becoming sort of an art lover, that Vienna is as much a city of old masters as it is of contemporary artists. You know, and I, um, he is getting, you know, exposure to this museum, which opens to the public in 1890s, but then later also to the Albertina, to the Belvedere, Schlosser. They also become these public institutions that were privately, previously uh, royal collections. And yet, like, this is also the time of Gustav Klimt, Egon Schiele, uh, of the Wiener Werkstätte. And those are all contemporaneous to Richard Neumann. But nothing I have seen in any of the inventories of his assets shows any real interest in the contemporary art. Um, you know, I think he was much more um, a lover of history and, and art history in that sense uh, of the old masters. And certainly the two advisors that he surrounded himself with were old master specialists. Um, Otto Benisch wrote on Rembrandt. And as I mentioned earlier, Lily Furlich Buma had a real interest in the Italian old masters. And the, some of the collections he, I don't know that much about sort of the deeper provenance to works prior to his collection, but I know that he, some of the works came out of dispersed collections that were being sold off, um, you know, from Hamburg, basically in various sort of major German collections. Um, but, you know, I think all through the network of various dealers. The art historian Sophie Lilly has been instrumental, I would think, in uh, the restitution of the 16 works that the family has uh, received back. Did the prompting for the restitution uh, of some of these paintings, was it conceived when um, Miss Lily approached the family just about researching her book? I, that's what the impression I got from the, uh, the interview I'd seen with them. Yes, I believe so. Um, the exact timeline of how that all played out out. I'm not entirely clear on. So I don't recall if they were approached by the city of Krems before they met Sophie Lilly, or if that all kind of came together at once. I think it is primarily through the book. And then they, they had this realization that, you know, working together, they would be sort of much more effective 
in tracking down these works of art. And I think for Sophie, uh, you know, she has this incredible network of people that she works with now and that she also just has, you know, um, impressive database of information. So she was, you know, really critical to finding things. And even now she said, you know, she just kind of looks through auction catalogs and keeps an eye out for things. And that's how uh, the De Vici panel was discovered that she was looking through a Sotheby's catalog and said, oh, hey, that looks really familiar. Are the uh, materials like those catalogs, are those incorporated in the current exhibition or are there other um, archival documents that uh, anyone coming to see the exhibit could also view? We have some tip-in illustrations with the labels. In particular, uh, I felt it was really important for our visitors to be able to understand what we meant when we talked about what was on the back of the painting. And so two of the works in the exhibition actually are on pedestals so that you can see the verso and follow the different um, cataloging numbers from as the works can move out of the Neumann's collection and make their way to back to the family. But also some of the others just have, you know, tippins that, you know, point out, you know, that it had property of so-and-so on the back. For example, the De Bici had a little sort of handwritten note that, that it was from the Neumann family. Um, in other cases, I have a lot of images from uh, the descendants of Richard Neumann and their uh, path to reconnect uh, with these works of art. So there are pictures from the ceremony at the French Ministry of Culture uh, when they uh, received six works back um, in 20, that was 2013. So um, yeah, there are a number of things that really personalize, I think, this experience and that this is, you know, this speaks to a larger narrative. I mean, this happened to so many people. There are so many works of art that are kind of out there in orbit that, um, you know, were sort of cast to the four corners during World War II and have yet to kind of be relinked together with the family that they were with. But this is also a very specific story of one family and the sheer amount of effort and tenacity that it's taken on the part of Richard Neumann, but also his grandson and his great-grandchildren to locate these works. And it means, you know, working with experts, but also traveling to Europe and meeting with various people, negotiating with current owners. Uh, You know, it's been an interesting process and it just builds this incredible network of people. I mean, that we, the Worcester Art Museum are part of that story as well. You know, it's sort of how museums have a certain responsibility to this material. Uh, You know, what our role in that is both as a place to show these works, but then also to look at our own collections and do what we can to reunite families with works that were improperly taken from them. Have there been any in the collection, uh, the permanent collection that have come out that have had those kinds of concerns? We uh, publish all of our works that have incomplete Nazi-era provenance on our website. To my knowledge, there is one work of art that has been um, sort of in process, and we're working with the family to determine if the work we have is the work that it's you know believed to be, and that is tricky, but um, we've been working sort of 
with them, with um, other researchers to kind of figure that out. We um, started that process last summer, so it's been a little tricky because of the pandemic and it's been a little bit slow going, but um, I think we're very much cooperative in that process. For the design of the uh, Neumann exhibition, when you were you were kind of uh, alluding to that a moment ago, but what was the central message, uh, or there are a few messages that you wanted to give that went into the design? Yeah, so the exhibition is divided into two distinct spaces. Uh, the first half is the Neumann's home in Vienna, and the second half is the process of trying to find these works of art after um, after the war. And I, I felt it was important to divide the story into these two pieces, because in order to kind of understand that this is a private collection, that there was a collector at the center of all of this um, to bring these works together, it felt important to get to know Richard Neumann. Also, you know, generally when curators put together exhibitions, you know, we have sort of the project and we see all of the works quickly, you know, building together to construct this argument. But when you're looking works that a collector, you know, the works in your exhibition are essentially only related because they were owned by the same person. And <laughs> which means, you know, it's going to look a little bit eclectic. And I thought, you know, when it would be really interesting to just hang them together because the last time they would have hung together in any sort of semblance of coherence was in the home of Richard Neumann circa 1938. So why not do what we can to recreate the feel of that? And then I think it's also important to do that because the way we look at art in someone's home is very different from the way that we look at art in an art museum, the way we relate to it, you know, it, um, we don't sort of generally move around people's houses <laughs> in single file <laughs> and look really closely. Um, or maybe we'll stop what we're doing and go and look at something. But I, I wanted to at least kind of simulate that experience that, um, that these are works that didn't come from a gallery, that these were on the wall um, of a collector's home. So we, we very much wanted people to sit on the furniture that we purchased uh, in for the gallery that was, you know, meant to look sort of mid to late 19th century Vienna. I think a lot of people have been afraid to sit on the furniture because <laughs> they're trying to respect museums, you know, no touching rules, but you know, some people actually have sat down. And now that we put books on a coffee table, I think it's a little more inviting, but, you know, so the first part of the exhibition really is evocative of what it would have been like to visit the Neumanns. Uh, Richard and Alice at their really lovely home in Vienna. And then the second half of the exhibition, um, as I mentioned before, you know, has a massive timeline that moves you from the 1950s to February 2021, when the last painting arrived at the Western Art Museum. But then it also features two of the paintings um, that are on pedestals so that you can follow all of the stamps and seals on the back. Um, and what's interesting about that is, you know, one of the paintings that we have displayed like that is one of the paintings that was uh, seized back in 38 and ended up at the Kunsthistorisches Museum. So it only has like 
one seal, basically, that, you know, indicates that it was part of the Kunsthistorisches Museum's collection. Uh, but the other painting uh, was sold to um, an agent that was buying works for the Sonderauftrag Linz, uh, which was this informal group creating the collection for the Führer Museum in Linz, Austria. It ended up in a salt mine. It then ended up in the muse- at the Munich Central Collecting Point uh, that was created by the Monuments Men. And then from there, it was returned to France because its precise origin was unknown, but it, there was knowledge that it had come out of France. So it went back to the Louvre and it hung out at the Louvre for several decades. But all of those numbers can be identified on the back of the painting, which is, you know, I think maybe it's more helpful to, for people to be able to see precisely what we mean when we say that a lot of provenance research can be taken from the backs of these paintings. And the two that you chose to put on the pedestals, is it to, to kind of compare the complexity versus the simplicity of the moves of the paintings? Exactly. I think that the fact that you see all of these different things happening on one and on the other, it's just pretty minimalist really speaks to the fact that these collections left people in a variety of different ways. You know, that there wasn't just kind of one action that severed sort of a collector from his or her collection, that there were, you know, state sanctioned uh, processes for that. But then there's also these sales that happened under duress uh, and, and that becomes a little bit trickier to untangle because, um, you know, and I think that's been in the news quite a bit, is like, what does it mean for something to be a forced sale or to be um, sold under duress? Um, when is a price, at what point does a price become too low? And it's clear that this person's being taken advantage of because of their circumstances. And also, you know, I think we we have found, you know, we, <laughs> the uh, relatives have, you know, found his uh, descendants have found these works that were sold under duress and were purchased by agents kind of building this, the collection for the Sonderauftrag Linz because they were going to a museum and they were in a large cache, an assault mine, and then they get sent back to a museum. But works that then filtered into the private art market those are really hard to find. You know, I think those are the last two works that have come back to the family, the um, Neri Bici, Madonna and Child, and also the Magnasco, um, I think it's the Monks at Mealtime that was recovered in February 21. Those are the ones that have popped up at auction. And it's unclear exactly what their path has been. You know, I had hoped that I might be able to show a third and I was eager to see what was going on on the back of Monks at Mealtime, but there wasn't a whole lot because sometimes when things go into private collections, you know, those stamps and seals are removed because they don't have a lot of significance to a private collector. You know, it's really a much more of a museum reflex to maintain everything that's happening on the back of a painting and to understand that as a historical record. So who knows, you know, and, and a lot of the time, I think in both instances of those paintings that have come to the family most recently, the people that owned them didn't know that they came out of the Neumann family collection, you know, that this is quite some time later. And it's unclear, you know, 
how, you know, where their family member purchased this artwork from. And so in those cases, they've paid for those paintings. You know, they just considered it incredibly good fortune that they were able to even see these works come up and that Sotheby's has been very willing to connect them to the current owner so that they're able to reach an agreement before the work is offered, you know, on at auction and could potentially go off to another private collection. Was there something in the provenance of those pieces that, that triggered the, like, did it list the Neumann ownership? Yes. So in the case of the Neri di Bici, uh, as I think I mentioned, Sophie noticed it in a Sotheby's catalog. And when um, Sotheby's ran the art loss registry search for the monks at mealtime painting, it came back as ex Neumann. And that um, led them to investigate a little deeper. Have there been any pieces that have come up where the Neumann reference was completely obliterated? Not that I'm aware of, but it would be hard to know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't know if they were using, um, you know, like I thought I'd read that they were using the photographs to also piece together the collection, but they do have that Mm -hmm. list. But then the Nazis also did their own list. So I wasn't sure how much I've been smudged with the record. <laughs> there, there are a lot of inventories and I, you know, in trying to digest all of this information, because I will say, um, you know, my role in all of this has been synthesizing this material that I, none of this is my research and really the, the real effort that has gone into researching these works and bringing them together is Sophie Lilly and, um, Tom Seldorf, who is uh, Richard Neumann's grandson. My job was just to look through this massive, massive Dropbox of scanned documents that were not in any real particular order and to try to decipher, you know, what this all meant. And, and so, yeah, in terms of inventories, I think there's the inventory that was conducted in 38 of the family's assets. There's the um, export visa for the works that are coming that were allowed to be shipped uh, from Vienna to Paris where um, Alice and Richard had moved when they sort of realized what was happening in Austria in 38. There are various handwritten inventories that Richard Neumann makes like in the 40s, in the 50s, and just trying to kind of make my way through all of this um, has been tricky, but it also kind of gives you a sense of the importance of sort of list making and this kind of trying to take stock of where they are in the process. And then there's Sophie has put together this very large, um, very large list as well, kind of thinking through the works that are still potentially out there. And I think, as I said before, it's kind of hard to know how many numbers what the numbers are for the collection, because when he applied for landmark status for the collection, I suspect that included works on paper and sculptures. When uh, the inventory of the collection was made in 38, for whatever reason, uh, the paintings collection was inventoried separately from household wares and personal effects, knickknacks and things. So sculptures were not on that list. Works on paper weren't on that list. So that's a little murky too. Um, so I, I think, you know, 
saying about 200 or a little over 200 is probably accurate, but that encompasses a variety of media. So not just paintings. I was curious your thought about the works that we know of that were segregated for the Lens Museum versus others. Like if you had seen where the caliber of those paintings spoke out that they definitely would have been considered the creme de la creme versus other paintings that maybe you would have thought, why weren't those in the Lens collection? Well, you know, what I think is interesting, um, the works that he's able to receive in France are all quite lovely, uh, but they aren't, you know, Martin van Heem's character donor panels. Um, And in some ways, you know, I'm really, really curious about some of the works that have gone missing that were on that initial inventory because there are other objects, other paintings um, that were appraised as high as some of the works that the Kunsthistorisches that were sent to the Kunsthistorisches Museum um, that did not that were released to go to France and. They haven't been tracked down in France either. So they're still out there in the world somewhere. You know, there's these Van Dyke, Rubens, uh, Saint heads. Um, it's unclear to me kind of why they wouldn't have been retained by the Kunsthistorisches Museum. Um, but no, I think, you know, when, um, as I was saying earlier, I, you know, he had a really wonderful eye. So the kinds of works that were being sort of purchased for the Sonderauftrag lens, you know, they were early, like late 17th century, early 18th century Baroque Rococo paintings, um, very sort of domestic in scale that they might not catch our eye at this moment, you know, as, you know, the greatest masterpiece, but they were strong representations of that style of painting. Also, um, Richard Neumann seemed to really prize um, oil sketches. And I think, again, that kind of speaks to his interest, deep interest in the art, that these were not sort of assets that he was interested in sort of buying, holding for a little while and then selling off. That there's something very personal about an oil sketch because it's, it's like a drawing in that regard. You know, that's really where you see the hand of the artist and the artistic process and how they're thinking through a motif, you know, whereas the actual ceiling painting itself would have been painted, you know, largely with assistance. It's on massive scale. It's something that would have been, you know, hard to see that closely. Um, and so the, you know, there were several oil sketches that would were sold to dealers that were acting as agents going into Lintz. I think it was just also meant to be a massive collection. The time frame when he was collecting the oil sketches, was that becoming vogue at that time or was it uh, ahead of it being uh, drawings being seen as, as a work of art on their own? I mean, certainly museums were collecting oil sketches at that time. Um, you know, there's they are also desirable, especially for private collections, because they are of a domestic scale and you could actually hang something like that in your home. You know, it's a way to kind of have uh, Venetian, you know, ceiling paintings 
in your home without in fact having a Venetian ceiling painting or, you know, or, or living in um, a palace in Venice. So, um, you know, I think those were things that were being collected in the late 19th century, early 20th century by museums and collectors. Um, but I think they speak very much to that relationship with Lily Froelich-Bumba, who's an Italian drawing specialist, uh, because, you know, an oil sketch is really just kind of one step away from, from, an act, from a drawing. Uh, what kind of reactions have you heard uh, from the exhibition? Uh, well, it's been really delightful to hear from our guards who have been in the exhibition that people are actually reading everything. And we've heard a lot of comments that um, you know, people spent an hour reading everything. And you know, as I was working on this, it's, you know, I was getting nervous that it was a little too wordy because, you know, art museums are really meant to be about the art. And I, I believe that too. I, I try not to have really long labels in exhibitions that I don't want the work of art to illustrate a point. Like the work of art is there to kind of stand alone and our labels are just to help people see things. But this is a different kind of exhibition and the story is as much a part of it. And so trying to find that balance between introducing people to Richard Neumann and his family, explaining what happens to everything uh, at, at the end of World War II, and then also trying to encourage some close looking of the works themselves so that the works aren't just illustrating kind of what happened historically. So I tried on the individual labels to point out things that um, are like, this is why, you know, look at specifically at characteristics that make something, um, you know, a Baroque painting. I mean, why would a collector of the Baroque want this particular painting? You know, why did, um, why would the Kutzestorisches want something like that? Um, and at least, you know, find a way to kind of move between the specificity of the painting itself and the larger narrative, and then to find a way to get the narrative of Richard Neumann's story to speak to this sort of massive scale um, historical moment. And, and then also find a way to address the fact that, you know, it, even though this family lost everything, they all survived, which is you know, not the case for so, so many people. And that at the end of the day, we're still talking about things when so many people lost their lives. Uh, that, you know, it's very tricky to try and keep that thread going. And it ended up producing just lots and lots of words. But I was really pleased to hear that uh, people have read them. and They weren't just, you know, uh, boring people. So, yeah, I think we've had a very positive response to it, um, which has, you know, been heartening. Were there other exhibitions that had um, informed you in the, the, the design and the approach to this exhibition or others that you would recommend? I had been aware of other exhibitions that uh, looked at recovered works. There's the Houtsticker exhibition that was at the Jewish Museum, but I um, hadn't seen it. But, you know, I think it's really a blend of exhibitions. You know, I think there was a rash of exhibitions of collectors. Um, you know, there was uh, collectors' collections being shown, um, the there was the Gertrude Stein uh, exhibition. I think it was at MoMA um, maybe a decade ago. And 
I thought that those were, you know, an interesting way to tell the story of a painting, because I think, as I as I said earlier, you know, it, it's tricky when you show uh, a collector's collection, because the thing that links the works together is the person rather than, you know, the subject, the style of the painting, the particular I mean, you could have things from various centuries sitting next to each other, but then trying to find that commonality to say that, well, okay, but there has to be some organizing principle of a single person buying these things because that person buys what he or she likes, you know, what their taste is sort of education that they have when they come to, to buying objects, they're working with the same advisors. And so there are similarities you can see in between works, even if they are from different time periods, different artists, different styles. I mean, in the terms of Richard Neumann, um, you know, he, he was collecting in a pretty narrow space, uh, especially when we think about the late Baroque, early Rococo. But even so, you know, like the Martin van Heemskerk panels look nothing like the you know, Rococo painting. And to have that work kind of hang next to each other and to think about sort of one person bringing those works into his collection alongside these other works. It's kind of important to think about, like, why was he buying that? Why were those his prized possessions when he was primarily a collector of Rococo? So I think that they, those kinds of exhibitions that included a lot of didactic images, specifically of people's homes, I think it's always fascinating to see what a painting that's hanging in a museum looked like when it was hanging in some, someone's home to see that kind of there's some cognitive dissonance there that it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around something being someone's private possession and then suddenly seeing it, you know, on a, a white museum wall. And, you know, I, I wanted to incorporate that. And I think that I had found that very effective in other exhibitions I'd seen. You were mentioning before that you had um, wanted it to look, uh, or to be hung as it might have been in their home. Did you follow the guide from photos of how it was hung in relationally with the pieces? Or was that a little more? I mean, that would have been really wonderful <laughs> if I had that kind of source material. Um, the photos were not that clear. The one that we blew up, I mean, you can see that there are more paintings hanging in the background. I think the thing that is so evident is that there was a lot of art in that house. And so you see, when you look kind of deep into these photographs, you see that things are being hung, you know, they're double hung on the wall. You see that they're kind of close together, that there's quite a bit of art in this home. Um, now I, I had hoped that we could recreate even like one particular wall, but like that was not in the cards. I mean, we're also talking about, you know, photography that was taken probably in the twenties. It was just, yeah. And, you know, I don't, they, you know, there were high res scans, but they were, you know, from photographs that are probably, you know, like maybe 10 inches wide. So we could only get so much clarity, but certainly I wanted to, you know, there are some double hangs. There are, um, we've sort of varying heights, you know, just to kind of give the sense of how you hang art in your home. Yeah. Are there any resources or um, sites, books uh, that you would recommend. I, I'm thinking first off of um, Sophie Lilly's book, What Once Was. And so that touches on the Neumann collection as well as others. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Sophie's book specifically has um, 
these inventories of sort of Jewish family collections. And uh, I mean, it's, it's impressive. And I think it's useful to look at because you get a sense of the diversity of people's collections. You know, I think um, many, many people know about the collection of the Block Bowers and the Klimt painting of Adela Block Bauer and Austrian Jewish families as uh, promoters of contemporary art. But I think what the what Sophie's book conveys so clearly is that there were families collecting lots of different kinds of art. There were people like the Neumanns who had old masters. Uh, there were families that were collecting uh, contemporary art, um, you know, a real variety that Vienna was very much a city of art time. Um, and, you know, not just among Austrian Jews, but much more broadly speaking than that. But that, you know, Austrian Jewish families who many of whom were very assimilated at the time sort of saw themselves as sort of part of this, you know, art loving community in, in Vienna. In terms of other resources, um, you know, there is a really interesting resource and it's tangential to this exhibition, but one that I find myself going back to a lot is uh, Stephanie Barron's uh, catalog for the degenerate art exhibition that she did at LACMA many years ago now. But basically it recreates uh, the checklist for the degenerate art exhibition um, that was organized by the Nazis to sort of show what degenerate modernist art was. And then it actually goes through and sort of looks at what has been located, what is gone, um, you know, what was destroyed. And I think, again, that's really interesting to kind of think about what was being shown, what was in people's collections uh, in nationally and, um, and then what remains? Because I think in all of these uh, scenarios, you realize like how much art is gone, like how much was destroyed and how much is just kind of out there yet to be relocated. Um, also just in general, uh, good web resources. Um, the French government uh, after the war kind of gave numbers, MNR numbers, uh, Musée National Recuperation numbers to paintings that were kind of returned to France, known to be, you know, someone else's property, but unknown exactly, you know, whose property it was. And then they were distributed to various national museums for, you know, safekeeping until they could be uh, reunited. And in the late 90s, uh, there was a, a website was launched that has images of these works hanging in the Jus de Pomme in Paris uh, that, you know, descendants of uh, families whose collections were dispersed during the war can go back and look. Um, there's also a you know, database that you can search for various collections. And I think that's actually how a lot of those works that belonged to uh, Richard Neumann were located in um and the ones that were returned in 2013. So it's an interesting website to visit. There is an extraordinarily dense amount of information there. When you look at the legacy of uh, Richard Neumann, is there a message that you would want to be remembered about him, especially um, for anyone who is thinking about uh, coming to, to visit the exhibition? I just wonder what you would like their lasting takeaway to be. You know, I, I only know Richard Neumann through his documents and everything that is sort of sitting in that massive Dropbox file. Uh, 
But I think that what I've taken away from it after having spent a lot of time sort of looking at his art collection and seeing, you know, what he liked surrounding himself with and, and spending time, a lot of time with uh, his grandson and his great grandchildren, uh, you know, that there was this incredible generosity of spirit and uh, this tenacity and perseverance that is inspiring. Um, You know, he, showed up in Havana uh, after having had to flee Vichy France, having been detained by border police, finally getting onto a boat out of Bilbao to head to Havana, showing up with nothing. And he just kind of brushed himself off and got a job working in a textile factory uh, as a foreman. Uh, he, as I mentioned, gave lectures um, initially to refugees, but learned to speak Spanish, gave lectures on history of art to the Cuban population, too, became part of an effort to have a new Palacio de Bellas Artes built in Havana. He was just someone who sort of celebrated the good in humanity. And I think in many ways, art for Richard good in humanity and I, I think that is where this real drive to share it with the public came from and it a positive you know attitude and with the belief that sort of anything that they're able to bring back together is a real success so it's been a very uplifting exhibition in spite of the fact that all of it centers around world war ii and the horrible tragedies and atrocities that came out of that war There will be a link in the show notes to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.